The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Monday, March 2nd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Buttigieg, Thrutigieg, Klobuchar, Overchar. But you know what the exit of these two Midwesterners who put party and country ahead of themselves? You know what that tells me? It tells me that Democrats are better than Republicans. Or at least so-called moderate, reasonable Democrats actually are moderate and reasonable, at least as compared to the same version of Republicans. These so-called moderate, reasonable Republicans could not act reasonably or with moderation back in 2016. We've heard it so much this cycle. The idea that, oh, it seems like the Democrats are going through what the Republicans went through last time, a collective action problem. It's in each of their interest to be the one who occupies the middle lane against a candidate from the extreme wing of the party but they can't get together and act so that only one of them occupies that lane. In 2016, the Republicans didn't want Trump, but they couldn't get out of each other's way. They couldn't clear that lane, if you will, for one choice, and they got Trump. They kept waiting for someone else to take him out, not the Democrats. Well, not these two Democrats. I guess Tom Steyer, too, but he's less of a politician, more of a rich guy with a bad tie. But Amy and Pete did it. Better to point to Biden as a sufficient embodiment of an okay candidate who will be a serviceable opponent to Donald Trump and a reasonable president should he get elected, rather that than the quixotic crusade of the never-ending campaign. So they're out and they say, vote for Biden. Now look, all politicians are egotistical, self-serving, grandiose. They are, in fact, some of the worst people on earth to put the good of the whole over the good of the individual. But Amy and Pete did it better than their Republican counterparts did. And in doing so, they may have saved the party and they may have saved the country. Now to the cavalcade of caveats. Bernie Sanders is not Donald Trump. I'm not saying he is. Donald Trump is a crass and cruel person who has animosity towards the underclass. Bernie Sanders is an idealistic person who has a lot of sympathy for the sympathetic. So mobilizing to stop Trump is a very different thing than mobilizing to stop Sanders. But put that aside. Don't judge the actions by the metric of who is helped or who is hurt in the end. Just judge it by the standard of what is the desire of everyone in the race who isn't Bernie Sanders this year or Donald Trump in 2016. Because back then, the Republicans, almost all of them, really wanted to stop Trump. They just couldn't get together and do it. The Democrats did. Ergo, the Democrats are better than the Republicans. It's really all kind of inspiring. Now, what's less than inspiring is what's left. Or who's left. The consensus, sane, safe choice is this guy. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by go, you know, the, you know, the thing. Yes, only that guy can one day match the intellectual and rhetorical fireworks on a debate stage when facing this guy. Now, this year I lost to Greta. <laughs> Greta. I lost to Greta. I said, who? Who is, of course, nowhere near as gracious and uplifting as this guy. And I wish them all the best. I thought both of them uh, behaved themselves, is a nice place to phrase it, but they represent... Well-behaved contestants. 
That's how Mike Bloomberg defines public service. Of course, maybe this guy, this next guy, is the guy that we'll all have to soon be rallying around. I'm sympathetic to the Sandinista government. I think it was right they made their revolution. They're trying to do the right thing. No good. No good. And those guys are the guys. Those are all the guys. And yes, they are all guys. It could be a coincidence, but we do seem to be pulling from a fairly narrow pool of candidates. Three of the last four presidents were straight white men born in 1946. The three remaining viable Democratic candidates, if you count Bloomberg, the ones you just heard from, were born in 1942, 1942, and 1941. A woman born in 1960 and a man born in 1982 have today endorsed one of the men born in 1942. And the reason they've made that endorsement is so that in the year 2024, we don't look back and say 24 out of the last 32 years, we lived in a country where the president was born in the year 1946. It's a big thing when you think about it. On the show today, a spiel about the process thus far of picking a president. It's a critique. But first, Ross Douthit is a New York Times opinion writer who is now the author of The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. And I'm going to give you a tip on how best to listen to this interview. In assessing his theory that we're a decadent society, you'll probably be tempted to focus on the word decadent and to use the standard definition of decadent and all the associations that come with decadence, like gluttony and being a libertine or excessiveness. But Ross means it more in terms of decay. So here comes my advice. When you hear us speaking of decadence, substitute sclerotic, risk-averse, or exhausted. Then it becomes a discussion, not a taxonomy, a discussion of ideas. With that in mind, enjoy my talk with Ross Douthit, author of The Decadent, meaning sclerotic or exhausted, society. Ross Douthit is a columnist for the New York Times. I listen to him every week on the Argument podcast where he and his co-host David Leonhardt and Michelle Goldberg prove Ross's status as not just liberals' favorite conservative, but I'm going to say the Jews' favorite Catholic, maybe a little bit. (laughs) Ross has a new book out. It's called The Decadent Society. Spoiler alert, it's our society, how we became the victims of our own success. Hello, Ross. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I know that, oh, absolutely. I know that uh, every interview will say, well, you define decadent in a weird, different way than maybe I would think of as decadent. The cover of the book is uh, a glutton being fed morsel after morsel. And so I did come into it thinking, well, I know Ross. I know his inclinations. He thinks that he probably does think Americans are, you know, um, too gluttonous and also a little bit libertine. But it's not exactly that, is it? No. And I mean, the cover is this terrific image that we couldn't resist using. Yes. But but you and, and actually you are the first person to point out something that I was afraid more people would point out, which is that the cover is of sort of decadence mm-hmm. of the traditional school where it is sort of gluttony and endless feasts and chocolate covered strawberries. And I guess that's a little bit of the story. But really, I'm defining decadence to mean stagnation and drift and repetition 
at a high level of wealth and technological development. So being decadent doesn't necessarily mean that you're morally corrupt or having orgies. In fact, some orgies might not be decadent at all. They might be dynamic orgies, right? <laughs> um, decadence is more likely to mean that you are sort of stuck repeating yourself. Your economy isn't growing as fast as it used to. You're not having as many kids or even as much sex um, yeah. as you used to. And you're just watching the same recycled Star Wars movies from and, here until the millennium. And this is different from other related critiques like secular stagnation or the end of history. How? It's actually an attempt to sort of synthesize some of those critiques in yeah. a way. So there's one of the first chapters of the book is about the sort of the economics of decadence. And it makes an argument that is a version of what Larry Summers calls secular stagnation, what the George Mason economist Tyler Cowen calls the great stagnation, basically the idea that not just the U.S., but all developed countries have growth rates have sort of subsided, decelerated. Mm -hmm. But then the book is also trying to bring in demographics a little more. And obviously, there's sort of a feedback loop there, whereas societies get older and they have below replacement birth rates. You have fewer young people, more old people. They get less dynamic. It costs more to have kids. So people have even fewer kids. That drives down economic growth. So these things are entangled. And then, but then they're also entangled with what I call political sclerosis, which yes. is the thing that – that's the part of decadence that I think everyone recognizes and agrees on basically, that U.S. politics is gridlocked and stalemated and Congress doesn't function anymore and you have sort of – you know, various contending forces, polarized parties, different branches of government and so on that make it impossible to get anything done. Right. So, but it's, as so it's bringing it's basically saying a decadent society is a society where a lot of different forces are converging to produce not collapse, not crisis, but stalemate and stagnation. Right. No new frontiers, no new ideas, everything is recycled and like copying something over on a VHS tape loses something with each iteration of a recycling. Yes, that's such a good line. I wish I'd used it in the book. <laughs> Feel free because I probably have quoted you without you knowing it also. So among my questions, and this interview is going to end with me giving you a prescription that you will not take but this will actually answer. It's It was out there. It's hanging out there. And I have a prescription which will blow your mind and make you feel undecadent and make you personally feel that you are going to break away from the exhaustion. So I'm, I just want to promise that. All right. I'm excited. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm ready. So, but let's talk about politics. It is true that America, because of its structures and because of its rules, is experiencing political sclerosis. But as you note, Europe, which has an entirely opposite set of rules, is also experiencing sclerosis. It could be that sclerosis has set in for two independent reasons and it just happened at the same time. But it seems to me more likely that it's other things causing the sclerosis and politics is just an expression of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, as I said, I think it's feedback loops, right, where Europe is in certain ways has always been since the 70s a little more economically stagnant than we are. Europe also does more redistribution and is more economically egalitarian. So there are trade-offs there. But European growth rates looked like they were going to converge with ours for a while and then have leveled off. European productivity growth is worse than ours and ours is already mediocre. So Europe has in certain ways a little bit more advanced case of economic decadence. And it certainly has a more advanced case of demographic decadence, where we've had below replacement fertility for the last 
10 years, arguably since the Great Recession, they've had it for the last 30 or 40 years. And to the extent that what we see in our politics is a reaction to mm-hmm. those kind of trends, it's not surprising that you have similar mixtures of, you know, distrusted elites and establishments, populist movements arising. But then when the populist movements take power, they're operating within this gridlocked, stalemated system, and it's hard to actually make dramatic reforms. And so there's, I think the the nature of our time, in a way, is a simultaneous desire for transformation that gives you Trump and Bernie and Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn and a whole host of figures joined to a lot of trends that make it hard to actually enact that. Most of all, I think, just the fact that societies that are older are very resistant to reform right for obvious reasons so if decadence your definition of decadence which is about sclerosis and risk aversion and exhaustion if that's true look at the current political moment we're in Uh, we have essentially two revolutionaries radicals uh who will be facing each other if bernie stays as the uh likely front runner facing each other in the presidential election now from reading your book i know you'd say Okay, that's maybe the style they've adopted, but is it new? It's just the same warmed over nationalism or Marxism. But you're not an adherent to either of those philosophies. To the people who are supporting these two guys, doesn't the moment seem to contradict what your general thesis is? Like not exhausting, but exciting. I think the moment shows that there's a lot of discontent with decadence. And I actually, I started working on the book, weirdly, a long time ago now, and a couple other life events intervened. So I started working on it a little ways after the 2012 election, Obama versus Romney. And that election just felt decadent full stop. Like, you know, an, an, an incumbent who had run a passionate campaign in 2008, running a very safe, negative campaign against a candidate who was just sort of Mr. Business Wing of the GOP, um, no energy, no excitement, an incumbent and establishment figure doing battle. And obviously, politics is more interesting today, for better or worse, than it was when I started. Going to submit worse. You're going to submit worse. <laughs> but it's more, but in, but to follow your question, it is less decadent in the sense that both socialists and nationalists are expressing a clear desire for something new. But I think there are two reasons to be doubtful that this is actually the end of decadence. The first is that there just are these constraints that, you know, you've seen manifest with Trump in power, right? Trump is an authoritarian on his Twitter feed. And, you know, he's pushing at norms all over the place when it involves making sure that, you know, his seedy allies don't get, you know, don't get sentenced to prison. But in terms of his actual effect on American policymaking, it hasn't been dramatic at all compared to what we, you know, what we would have expected from a genuinely realigning president, Ronald Reagan, FDR, and so on. And that suggests that within the structures of decadence, it's hard for even a disruptive figure to change things. And I suspect that the same would be true of a Sanders presidency, that it would be more like a Joe Biden presidency than a lot of Sanders supporters want to think. And then the other thing... Well, it'll be like a Biden presidency, but with a lot of anger online. With a lot of... Well, right. Well, and the, <laughs> right, which, is, which leads me to the second reason I'm skeptical, which is that it seems like there's all this sound and fury, but it exists in virtual spaces, right? It's very different from the protest politics of the 1960s. People go online and sort of play act politics. And there's this academic named Eitan Hirsch who 
wrote a book that came out after mine, so I don't quote him in guest. the book. He, he was, was a our guest, guest right. yesterday. So you heard, okay. So, <laughs> sure. Love so me, Tom. everyone should go listen to that episode. <laughs> yeah. And But my gloss on it is, you know, he's talking about what he calls political hobbyism. Mm-hmm. And that's a version of what I call sort of the retreat into virtual politics where you fave a tweet you know, or you donate money to somebody on Facebook and you feel like you've done politics. But in fact, you aren't engaged in the kind of organization and activism that has traditionally led to one political realignments and two sweeping policy changes. So right. 2016, I, 4% of voters uh, actually volunteered in a campaign. 1964, 17%. Right. So that's yeah. that's a great statistic. I'm going to steal that for the next. That's the next, the next. That's Aton. So I'll give him, I'll give him all the credit. But that's that, I think, so far is the dynamic, that there is a revolt against decadence, there mm-hmm. is a dissatisfaction, but the rebels have trouble following through on their promises when they take power, and a lot of the energy involved gets diverted into the sort of virtual space we've created where people can be socialists and anarchists and neo-reactionaries right. on Twitter without actually ushering back in the 1930s or the 1960s. Is that much different from the idea of commodifying your dissent? This is the new commodity. That's how dissent gets commodified. Right. And the sort of Marxist version of my argument, right? I mean, would be... There's a lot of your argument, by the way, that over... I'm not a Marx scholar, but a lot of it struck me as fitting in with Marxism. No, I mean, I did... One of the conversations I did was with, you know, I think it was with Vox, but we were talking about sort of the Frankfurt School, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of their view of how, how... capitalist cultures sort of turn everything into entertainment and commercial products. And, you know, without sort of going all the way with Marxist analysis, I think that's true, at least of our particular moment. I'm I'm sort of skeptical of arguments that like, well, this is the iron logic of capitalism. Right. And, and there's a version of this on the right, right, where books like my friend Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, that got a lot of attention a couple of years ago, basically said, you know, it's not capitalism, it's that liberalism as an ideology with its focus on individualism sort of leads inevitably to atomization, fragmentation, and so on. And I think both of those arguments, the left-wing one and the right-wing one, definitely describe our era. I'm just less sure that you can say, well, it was all there in James Madison or, you know, there in capitalist capitalist growth, and, and it was always inevitably going to come out. I think it's more that we just have sort of hit some particular limits with, you know, the fact that, like, we can't actually, it seems, colonize space being an obvious example that have made latent tendencies more likely to be manifest. So, now we come to the part of the interview where I have my prescription. I yes. know what will save you. Excellent. That you will never, that you will never How, how do you know, agree man? to. I've, I've read the book. Okay. And I did the calculation. Yes. So, here are some of the things listeners should know. Here are some of the things you talk about and advocate. The Frontier. You like frontiers. You like the spirit of frontierism. Babies. That's a big prescription. Babies are You love are babies. Good. Babies in, are great. I'm, I'm in favor. You even speak up for cults. Not that they're a good thing, but talking about Wild Wild Country, that documentary about the utopian community in Oregon, you said the lunacy was obvious, but so was the boldness, the yearning for transcendence, the willingness to believe in a life-changing message and a holy man. So cultishness, frontiers, babies. You're a devout Christian. You want to be a Mormon. 
That's my prescription. If you were a devout Mormon, you would not feel decadent. And if you were in a Mormon community, you would not feel the world was, you would not feel your community so was you, decadent. So you think this is a crazy prescription, but this is not. Don't don't think that I haven't considered it. We, when Mitt Romney was running for president, the Mormon church would invite some journalists uh-huh. out for sort of like tours of Mormondom, basically, to... You know, I, I assume sort of try and educate people in preparation for the looming Mormon mm-hmm. presidency sure. that didn't actually happen. And speaking as a, you know, as a Christian who considers the Mormon revelation to be heretical or, you know, some some sure. term like that, it was shaming to see the dynamism of of sort of the, you know, of the Mormon world. The, yeah. Not just the not just the big families and the missionaries, but you know the the sort of supermarkets they run for low income people the yeah. you know the kind of charitable service, works that yeah. make and it's absolutely the case in in the I, I think i say this in passing in the book but like the two least decadent places for on my definition in the rich world right now are probably greater deseret which means you know that's the old name for for um the you know the mormon republic out in utah and the state of israel and if I were to say to someone, you know, where are you going to go and live where, you know, there might be problems, but they won't be the problems of decadence, it would be Provo and, and Tel Aviv. Now, you know, there are some obstacles to my becoming yeah, Mormon. Only most you believe no, in most, the revelations most, of the archangel yeah, Mordecai. Yeah. Most, it's, it's Maroney. Maroney, it's, I mean, sorry. It's not, bad. And, I, and it might be Maroney. Anyway, um, yeah, so there are some obstacles. But if, <laughs> but if, I have told my Mormon friends this, if... Archaeologists in Central America yeah. discover ruins of the civilizations that appear in the Book of Mormon. I will have no choice but to convert, and I will be delighted to do so and leave decadence uh-huh. behind. What do you think more likely? Will Ross Duthit in 2040 be a Hasidic Jew, a member of the LDS Church, or just a little more depressed than he is now? <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, I'm I intend to stay Catholic. I already converted once as a teenager, and I think. I think I'm going to stick around. But, you know, the reality is that I'm there's all this data on happiness over the life cycle. Right. And I'm I just turned 40 years old, which means I'm headed into what is statistically the trough of happiness. Uh Probably this book in part just reflects that downhill slide. And in 25 years. I will be sitting around saying, these apps are terrific. They let me talk to my grandkids from across the country. What was I thinking 25 years ago complaining about decadence? So that's. That's the plan. Still Catholic, more reconciled to the age of the app. Ross Douthit is the author of The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. And now the spiel. Let us reflect. Let us reflect on the process of how we have chosen this Democratic nominee. And I say this today purposefully because I don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. So it's not a critique of a person. It's a critique of the process. And I think we can all admit that this process has, in a word, sucked. That it was no way to choose a president and that it's just going to get worse from here. In my entire life, this has been the most dreary race to the White House ever. When I was a kid, Republican nominating contests resulted in a Reagan or a Bush or a Bush or a Reagan. Those are pretty exciting. There was usually a McCain or a Buchanan-type rogue element along the way. And then the party coalesced around this Reagan or this Bush. And they were happy with it. I mean, one time they went with Bob Dole for some reason. But at least they were happy. There was the Reagan revolution and Reaganomics. People loved Reagan. 
I'm not here to defend Reagan or to talk about his policies or George W. Bush. But what I'm saying is those people, those Republicans who are into being Republican, were pretty happy with the process. And Clinton and Obama did that for Democrats. The last time around, as horrible as it is to say, among us, the sane, Trump was thrilling to his supporters. So that worked. And a lot of people on the far left didn't like Hillary, but I was kind of excited by Hillary. I thought she would have been a good president. So for me, this Democratic nominating process has definitely been the most dissatisfying of my life. Remember, people did not hate Dukakis and Mondale at the time. They make fun of them in retrospect, but those guys were liked by the Democratic establishment. They didn't have huge glaring weaknesses until, you know, a second after Dukakis rode in the tank. So we're either going to get Bernie Sanders, who most self-identified Democrats are really wary of, I stand by that statement, most self-identified Democrats are really wary of this guy becoming the Democratic nominee, or we'll get Joe Biden, who most self-identified Democrats are kind of meh about, he's unobjectionable, it really is no way to pick a president. So far, we have allotted less than 4% of the delegates available. And our choices have been whittled down to such a degree that this once burgeoning field of 24 candidates is down to four, five, if you include Tulsi. The feeling of, wow, there are a lot of ideas here. Sorting through this should be exciting and maybe challenging. That's all been reduced to the old familiar guy, the old billionaire, the old guy who hates billionaires, and the actually 70 years old but comparatively adolescent woman who everyone says has no chance. Great. Some candidates who exited only elicited a shrug, some a sigh, some a pat on the head, good job, try next time. And none individually can argue that any of the candidates who've exited really had a good shot at winning. They didn't really make a mistake by exiting. But I do think that if you ask most Democratic voters, hey, coming in to Super Tuesday, would you like a chance to vote for some combination of Kamala, Corey, Julian, Pete, Amy, the Yang Gang? Or do you want to sweep them all away and only be left with old guy, old billionaire, old guy who hates billionaires and Liz? I think most Democrats would trade their current donkeys for the box on the display floor. But collectively, the polling and the fundraising and the process said, no, you leave, leave us with the old guy, the billionaire old guy, the old guy who hates billionaires, and Liz Warren. I blame the party and I blame the media because the party organizes the primaries as a media event, and it does not work. It just does not work. There is so much grappling and vetting and pushback so very early in the process that when the choice actually goes to the voters, they're ill-served. They at best have a vague sense, wait, what was that about Biden's hair sniffing or busing and seven? I remember something about that, but I can't quite recall it. And oh yeah, Liz, she was the front runner for a while, but now she just can't win. Why is that again? I mean, let's just take that question as a fact. Was it the case that the party was diluted for a while by supporting Elizabeth Warren more than the other candidates? Or is it the case that they're kind of diluted or dysfunctional now? One of them has to be true. Months and months before regular people were or even should have been paying attention, cuts were made in the field. And the only thing that could withstand this vetting, these cuts, was having super high name recognition 
or a cadre of unshakable fanatics or $52 billion. Great process. I believe the party will tell itself that, hey, we performed a weeding out. This is what we were supposed to do. If you left, it's because you couldn't stand up to scrutiny. I don't really think so. I think this was an impossible game of Survivor for which there was no winning. Only three or four people got immunity idols along the way. I haven't really watched Survivor, but I hear immunity idols are a thing. Caucuses are an undemocratic disaster. At least we see that now. Maybe they'll be swept away. But then the first two states, which are supposed to be where retail politics and voters really getting the chance to assess and know the candidates up close. Well, what happened there? We might as well just have ignored them. One of the two viable candidates who are still left performed absolutely disastrously in New Hampshire and Iowa. The other one who is said to be viable tied, twice tied an upstart who's not even half his age. Now, Nevada was a big percentage win for Bernie Sanders, but a big win in a low turnout caucus, it meant that only 35,000 people showed up to caucus who even wanted him to be president more than anyone else. Now, it's true. That's twice as much as the other people running. But that was his signal event. That's the one argument where you could say, yeah, Bernie Sanders really showed his mettle by getting those 35,000 Nevadans to back him. And what did South Carolina show? I mean, you could talk yourself into a story, oh, it showed a comeback and the power of a Clyburn endorsement or a firewall. But isn't just as true a story this? Black voters like Biden? Black South Carolinians stuck with Biden? Black South Carolinians didn't care about anything that came before or maybe didn't pay too much attention to what came before? And what if you're not a black voter from South Carolina? Doesn't matter. They got their way. So for everything that went on for years in this crazy process with ups and downs and John Delaney's squat thrusts and Marianne Williamson's dark forces and Castro getting everyone but Joe Biden to say there should be no such thing as coming into this country illegally. Not that it shouldn't happen, just that it shouldn't be illegal. That's kind of crazy. For all of that, all that mattered is that one guy with an unshakable cadre of support from the far left one guy who is unbelievably rich and one guy who had the support of black voters in one state are left. It is that simple. No, 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 no. You have to fundraise. You have to come out with policy positions. You have to have a strong ground game. You have to build coalitions. You have to have great moments and debates. No, you don't. None of those things were true. I mean, Bernie did fundraise. He has a lot of supporters, but he has the least detailed policy positions. Biden never had a good debate. Some were less disastrous than others. Bloomberg, he only had money. And Warren did do most of those things better than everyone else. But there's little logic left to her being still in the race. And this is all with 96% of the delegates yet to be assigned. Look, I'm not despairing. I'm just reflecting. I do think this is no way to pick a candidate. And the sad thing is this, this whole process, this whole no way to pick a candidate might not actually pick a candidate for four more months. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby is the associate producer of The Gist. She is dropping out and endorsing the mayor of DeForest, Wisconsin, because that is the halfway point between Minneapolis and South Bend. So she figures it's a good catch-all for Camps Buttigieg and Camp Klobuchar. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, is very intrigued by this idea of Camp Klobuchar. Sing-alongs, bug juice, 
toasting marshmallows, roasting on a comb over an open fire. The gist. And crown thy good with, uh, what is it now? From C to the other, you know, big wet thing. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.